This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Crime Ant. My name is Julie J. And this week, I, guys, I can't believe my luck. It's finally happened. I've managed to get her. I'm talking to the wonderful, the hilarious... Emma Doran. About the disappearance of Philip Carnes. I finally have you on. I know this is very strange because I'm like I have to. Well, in plenty of uh, podcast episodes, I have taken a back seat, but I definitely have to take a back seat this time. No. I haven't got a hangover to help me. No, because absolutely of a hangover. Not. Do you have well, one? No, no, fresh no. As a daisy. No, You're- fresh as a daisy today. You're looking fresh, you're feeling fresh. Well, I've wanted to have you yeah. on for ages, but you see, the thing is, we do so much stuff together that I was conscious. I didn't want you to feel like you had to do another podcast with me because it was getting to the stage where we were doing, it seemed like we were doing a podcast together three times a week. I know. we as Well, especially when lockdown started, we were doing a lot of podcasts and then we there was a lot of WhatsApp audios as well, which constituted which more podcasts, podcasts, really, didn't it? Oh, I know, yeah. but I'm happy to do it. I'm delighted to be doing it. And Sp- you've picked a great one. You've picked one especially for me, really. Well, it so is. It is. It, and I did say in the intro, it's, this is, a. I mean, they're all sad, but this is a particularly sad one. I did think of you for this one, of course, because this occurred in your local area. Yes, I know. Uh, well, you'll be able to tell me, but I'm pretty sure I know uh, the locations. I definitely know the schools involved, all that kind of stuff. So when you're uh, talking about places, I'll be able to visualize them I could have even gone past them on my walk this evening oh it's kind of creepy isn't it it is it is creepy yeah and uh like the lane way with the school bag and uh you much, know man. too much. much. This know, is gonna be a good bit but it's a long time since I've um heard anything about it or spoken about it with anyone the last person and then I'm gonna let you uh, tell me no, everything. work away. The last person who I kind of followed, um, like backseat followed, just kind of observed, who was talking about it a lot was Gareth O'Callaghan. Yes, yeah. On Facebook, he would have been talking about it a good bit. So I would have, I would have, uh, for a while, like a few years ago, I checked into him for a little while 
to see what kind of stuff he was saying. He's yeah, he's he's got a lot of theories on it, and he yeah, he's a very interesting guy actually when it comes to this. He's very informed. Yeah, he kind of has. Uh, well, he I think through his research, he found out that he was a kind of a third cousin. He's a distant so he relative. Ended, yeah, yeah. So I think that. Not that he became more interested then, but I think it just maybe solidified. I think he almost felt like uh, it was a sign that he had reason to be interested in it or something, kind of like almost a stars aligning kind of thing. That was my read of it anyway when he was talking about it. Absolutely. And he has actually, he's, you know what, he really has brought a lot to the case, but we'll, we'll get to him. We'll get to him in a few minutes. I'm just going to go back. Yes. Now, you, you know, well, you know, most of this already, Mrs. So my apologies. I'm going to just retell no. the story for the people that aren't familiar with it, but feel free to jump in with your two cents whenever you feel like it, because that's why you're here and you're always great for the opinions. You are the smartest person I know. I'm not. I'm just uh, a blagger. Okay, so let me tell you about this case, Emma, even though you know most of it already. Okay, so this case, as you know, takes place in Rathfarnham. You're a local, a middle-class leafy Dublin suburb, long considered a relatively safe area within the remits of the Irish capital. On the 23rd of October 1986, which was a Thursday, Philip Carnes came home to his house in Rathfarnham for lunch, as he always did. He was 14 years of age. He had four older siblings and one younger brother, and was known for being a sweet, shy boy who loved fishing and had settled well into his first year in Skull Aina. As he left the house to head back for his afternoon classes, he shouted goodbye to his granny and proceeded to leave his granny, mother and sister in the house, his sister who had actually been home that day with the toothache. So school was a 15-minute walk along the Ballyrowan Road, which you know well, Yes, And he was to call into friends on his way back to school. So what they would usually do is obviously they would, they would both go home to, for lunch. So they had an hour off for lunch. They would go home and they would walk back together. That was what they would do every day. But Philip never showed up at his friend's house. The friend obviously carried on to school without Philip, presuming he had stayed home for the afternoon for some reason. Philip's dad, who was also called Philip, so Philip Sr., came home at five o'clock and he didn't actually take any notice of the fact that Philip wasn't home yet. He presumed that he'd stayed out with friends and he was actually kind of happy about that because Philip had been kind of a shy boy. So his immediate thought was, oh, great. He's staying out to kind of maybe hang hang out with some of the boys from his class or whatever. But it was when his mother, Alice, returned a little while later that they began to get more worried as it was really out of character of Philip not to let them know where he was. So they proceeded to ring around friends and family, but nobody had heard from Philip. It was then that they rang Skolena and found out that he had never returned to school after lunch. And this was when panic really set in for them. So I presume Skolena is probably, it's not too far away from you, Mrs., is it? Yeah, so the school is um, Klosdana. Oh, is it? Oh, of course, because Skolena would be the primary school. So... Uh, so he would have been in, in Clash Jane. That's like where my um, brothers would have gone, and I would have gone to the girls' secondary school, Saint So like that's yeah, that's like thirty seconds away. So even when I was in school, for any of us who lived local, there was always like a cohort that would like go home at lunch, get yes. food, and walk back. So like my brothers did that, and I did that throughout secondary school and kind of like him you would have knocked into the mate to go back yeah it was such a short period of time to like whack the rashers on we did it like it was yeah this is it because they lived actually Philip lived 15 minutes from school they had an hour for lunch but that's kind of what a lot of people did is that you'd go home and you'd have a half an hour at home but it was enough time to make yourself a sandwich or a cup of tea and that's what people did yeah like he would have been not the same area, but he where he lived, it would have been around like the same distance yeah. as I would have been doing. So, okay. Yeah. 
I know. Yeah, I know exactly where he lived. So, I, of course, you know, if I, I suppose the, the issue here was that obviously Philip had come home at lunchtime, hadn't called to the mate's house. He didn't go back to school. And between the jigs and the reels, it wasn't until about seven o'clock when they rang the school and they discovered that um, uh, they discovered that he hadn't actually been in the school after lunch. That they really started to panic at that set and they at that stage and they contacted the guards straight away at seven o'clock. And to their credit, the guards took it really seriously from the get go. So you know, oftentimes the guard, oftentimes the guards come in for criticism when it comes to these missing. Persons person cases, but they really did take it seriously from the get-go. So what makes this case case so bizarre is that there was no sign of Philip, none whatsoever. They looked at well-known angling spots because he had been into fishing, but still there was no trace of him. The local area was scoured. Neighbours and students in Clostaina were all asked to come forward with information, but nothing came of these appeals at all. Two prayer vigils were held at the local church. The family had a really strong faith and they were very involved in their church community. So they held these prayer vigils, uh, vigils obviously whilst uh, you know they, they were running services churches, etc. But nothing materialised. It really was as if Philip had disappeared without a trace. The guard investigation focused on Rathfarnham and local rivers. So volunteers and members of the civil defence all got involved. As I said, a huge area was being combed for clues. And by the following week, they made a televised appeal asking members of the public to come forward with information. So... I mean, obviously, it kind of escalated pretty quickly because this was broad daylight and a 13-year-old boy had disappeared seemingly without a trace. So the guards really didn't waste any time here. And one thing actually with this case, and it really comes across with the various things that I did read on it, the level of community support was huge. So the community really rallied around this family and offered assistance any way they could. Oh yeah, like it was absolutely massive because even uh, a mate of mine, um, I think it was like reading in the years or something. She's like, oh, there's my sister. And she's like laughing at her sister because like the head in her, like this is like eight yeah. six. But she was out for the searches. And I know like, again, friends, older brothers, are like brothers say in particular, being questioned by the guards and like yeah. going back for like more questioning and like, like, you know, might have had one class with the fella and you absolutely fuck all. But if they got this, like, obviously, you see, it must be so hard to question teenagers because chances are there's probably a few of them that are hiding something. Of now, course, they're not, they're, hiding, they're not they're necess- connected to yeah. this, but they could be conscious of hiding something minor, you know what I mean? So, like, even the fact of like being in a guard station and being questioned, I'm sure, was like, fucking massive I mean huge and as as you say I mean it's kind of the nature of being a teenager that you do have secrets you know whether that's you're smoking you're not supposed to be smoking you were on the hop that day you weren't supposed to be on the hop that day like you can understand why teenagers would not necessarily be forthcoming to police in any situation yeah I think both like uh, any age if like say you got the call now to be questioned about somebody's gone missing well, yeah, kind of shit in it. Yeah, I suppose it. I mean, I guess. Well, look, I suppose the nature of any interrogation is that it makes you nervous. Of course. Yeah, in any in any context. I mean, and I think with this with this case, like I if get, I went missing, you'd be suspect number one. <laughs> well, I was going <laughs> to say, if I was questioned in relation to your disappearance, I'd definitely be sweating. Because let's face it, I'm the one responsible for that, a hundred percent. But look, anyway. So yeah, no, it is. It's de- you heard it here first, and yeah. obviously, look, it's a podcast, so it can't be used against me in court. That's how there's like a constitutional law against that. I think Dev was very, he was very forward thinking. Um, so as we said, Klaus Aina. The, I mean, there was huge community support. The Klaus Dana was actually, they were called back because of course this would have taken place 
around Halloween. So this was midterm break. So Philip disappeared the Thursday before the midterm. So the students were actually called back from the midterm early to be questioned. As you said, Emma, they were questioned extensively, but nothing came with these interviews. 18 detectives were working this case, which is like a lot of detectives. So aside from just regular guards, they had 18 detectives on this. And it was at this point that Philip Karen Sr., so kind of six days after the fact, he came out um, and it was the best part of a week since Philip had last been seen and he told the papers that he believed his child had been abducted that was his theory the guards mm. did not concur with this though as they insisted they had no evidence pointing that direction and they were keeping an open mind now one thing with the Cairns they just come across as the most dignified gorgeous family and one thing they did throughout, I mean, obviously throughout these last few decades, they have remained in contact with the media because I suppose it's that feeling that if we if we engage with the media, somebody might come forward with something. So it is that hope that by engaging with the papers, you are keeping the story alive and fresh in people's minds. So the guards very much had this open mind when it came to the case. They studied statements and then they started to look for inconsistencies. But of course, the Cairns were getting increasingly worried. And over the course of the previous weekend, a sighting of a young male fitting Philip's description appeared in Carrick on Shore. That raised a lot of hopes, but this was ultimately proved not to be Philip. Between the 29th and the 30th of October, the guards got 44 tips of supposed sightings of Philip. But again, these all came to nothing when investigated. The story was getting increasingly strange and the investigators had virtually nothing to go on. A lot of people were asking how a 13-year-old boy could disappear on a relatively busy road. I mean, you know, we're not talking the M50, but it wasn't like a country, you know, a road or Bohreen or anything. Oh yeah, no, it's a busy road because even like sometimes if I was going for a walk and I thought it was late, I might go down that road because... It's well lit and it's... Yeah, yeah, there's houses yeah. all the way down and, you know, it wouldn't be like, especially at the moment, it wouldn't be like mad busy, but... Uh, like on yeah, a lot you're just of traffic. Visible. Of course, yeah, you're just it's more visible. high visibility. The middle of the day. I mean, in a suburb of Dublin, we're not even talking like way out in the suburbs. I mean, Rathfarnham is an urban area and apparently nobody saw anything. So the guards just could not get their head around this at all. So this is why they yeah. consistently made appeals again and again and again, because it just did not make any sense whatsoever. And then there would have been, say, parents, like, say, the direction that he would have gone back to Class Janet, there would have been parents heading to the primary school to collect junior yeah. and senior infants. So all that would have been happening or they would have been coming back maybe when he'd be heading towards school after lunch. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the primary and, school is just beside Class Janet. And so that's why, and and that's why the guards. They one thing they have continually reiterated. They've just been reiterating this all the time. Is that if you saw anything, you might think it's insignificant, but it's not. So ultimately, their theory was that something happened. We're not talking about you know. A, a dramatic or an extreme instant in public, but something must have been noticed by someone, whether it was a person of interest in the area, whether it was a conversation, whether it was a car, but something must have been noticed. And ultimately, they just had very little to go on, even with these appeals. So on the 29th of October came a massive break in the case. So a significant development occurred at about eight o'clock. Philip's bag was found in a laneway called Washington Lane, about five minutes from Philip's home. So you probably know that lane, Emma. I know that lane very well. I've hidden drink down that lane. I was going to say, this is where we get into it. I've had a few smoochies. I've definitely hid smokes and had smokes down that lane. Now, there since has been houses built, so it's not as good for a lane. <laughs> but um, it's, do you know what I mean? It doesn't have, it's not the same kind of lane feel. But a friend of mine lived across the road from that. They had a few wow. quid. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was mixing in. Uh, you know those kind you've of got fr- you've got then. friends in high you've got friends in high places Emma and I like it 
Yeah, so we would sometimes nip down there for an old smoke or it was it was the perfect place to like nip down that lane if you needed to like finally take something out of your bag or now put your cigarettes in your pocket rather than hiding them. Do you know what I mean? And in terms of like, yeah, it was a great lane, lots of memories. <laughs> but in terms of how close that was to... Uh, Dana, um it would have been out of his way in terms yeah, this... of his way to school but there would have been from Ballyrone Road to Washington Lane there's a shortcut off the Ballyrone Road yeah where you can go into the laneway so in terms of his, I don't know where exactly he like what where exactly he goes on Ballyrone Road because the road itself is about a mile um, it wouldn't be far from his house anyway. He's well, yeah, exactly that. So it would have been a lane that he was familiar with, and it was known to be a shortcut that he would have used. But the whole issue with the bag being found in the lane was that it wasn't on his route to and from school. So people were questioning why it was found there because that's not a place that he would have been passing if yeah. he was on his usual route back to school. So these two young girls found the bag, and obviously panicked when they saw who the bag belonged to. So they dropped it up to the Garda station. And I mean, I guess when they found the bag, there were a couple of things about the bag. Um, The day the bag had been discovered, it had been raining really heavily, yet the bag itself was relatively dry. This seemed to point to the fact that it had actually been planted there. Fibres were also found in the bag, but these were of little use because obviously, again, this is like way before DNA. I did have um, a very pedantic guest on once and he proceeded to question me as to when DNA actually came into effect in Ireland. I don't know, guys, but like not at this stage. Who was it? I'm not just saying this when I, it was, I mean, it was a male guest. I don't want to, God, I don't want to sully somebody's reputation here. I'm not sure actually who was the pedantic piece. I've had a couple of awkward guests on Crime Man. Well, I'm suppose, not going to lie. It's not, a, it's not a clear cut thing of when DNA came it in. It just gets better just and better. Fur, yeah. It's been incremental. Like they could do the old fingerprints back in the day but they had to go through them all individually yeah and you see the issue with the fingerprints as well was obviously a fingerprint kind of needs to be on a certain type of surface as well so this canvas bag would not really have lent itself to fingerprints that was one of the things they said at the the time so uh, Alice poor Alice um, Philip's mother they held a prayer vigil that Friday so the following night after the bag was found and she had said at the prayer vigil again when interviewed by media that the the final finding of the bag got her hopes up initially but that then the more she thought about it the more she was quote confused by it so it just kind of stirred up a lot of feelings for people people didn't really know what to think and on the 3rd of November Claude Aina returned from their midterm break and a prayer service was held for Philip that morning with guards again handing out a questionnaire for all the students to fill out and for them to hopefully provide information on the case then I suppose the rumours started as to what might have happened, um, Philip. There were numerous rumours as uh, to what had happened to him. One was that he had been the victim of bullying and that this had resulted in a tragic accident. But Alice, his mom, said this didn't feel right as Philip had been happy in school. So she just mm-hmm. did not feel that, that something like that took place. A reconstruction of Philip's last movements was then played the following day on RT News. And they also began to interview students from other schools to see could they garner any information from them. But again, nothing material. Physically, they continued to search local waterways and they actually began lifting manhole covers. The council got involved. They started lifting manhole covers to try to look for evidence that might have washed away because the weather had been particularly bad. Um, so they were looking They were looking for evidence there. And guards were totally baffled that nobody had seen anything. They made a specific to appeal to the person who would place the bag in the laneway to come forward. But these appeals, of course, went unanswered so again like like the guards really were really were putting pressure on the public to come forward but they were kind of just met with just a lot of false leads and they really were not given any leads that would take them in the direction of where they needed to be going with this at all they really did not have a lot to go on at all with this 
Yeah, because I think that, yeah, that was the whole thing that the bag was planted. Um, but just now, like, I've never heard of any, like, uh, not even concrete leads, but like viable leads. All I've heard of is theories. A lot of theories. theories about your man, the DJ fellow. What was his name? Yes, Eamon Cook. We're going to get to him. Yeah, there was rumours. That was the most kind of, uh, I don't know, how would you say, like plausible a theory or like rumour. I wouldn't even call it like a theory or whatever. But... um, but you know, Garrett yeah. O'Callaghan does he doesn't put much weight on that theory actually. Yes, I'd say what yeah. was he kind of putting weight on? Well, we'll was get to that. Related? Oh, not quite. No, but we we, we So we, long. Okay, yeah, tell me. Tell we me. will get to it. So basically, 14 days after Philip's disappearance, the murder squad have been called in and they were searching Marley Park, Bushy Park, all these other areas. And uh, on Sunday, the Dendis, 9th of November... Don't forget, sorry, don't forget St. And St. Dentist, so sorry. I can tell oh, you, it God, is a hotspot at the moment. A woman said to me the other day, she said... Uh, sorry, like what time does this park close? It's my first time here. So St. Andrews <laughs> always gets left out of the mix, but it's a very good park. Coffee oh my God, I am, here, I am starting to sweat because you were such a local expert here. So at this point, uh, look, I have looked into Philip Frages. This is really interesting. So, th- so at this point, the search went wider. Now, for some reason, and the guards would have always kind of kept their cards, re- played their cards relatively close to their chest here. Um, they've never really explained why they specifically focused on the local area so much, but then they kind of went broader with the case. And the evening mm-hmm. Herald then reported that the guards were looking into religion connection to this, i.e. that Philip had been abducted by a religious cult. Now, this was a rumour that went around for a long, long time. Yes, the guards themselves, they didn't really place any credence in these rumours, but of course, like they still had to investigate because they had nothing to go on. So they started this nationwide check on religious communities. So they were going around various religious communities, Hare Krishna, uh, Christian communities, uh, Jehovah's Witness communities, um, all types of religious communities. And again, there were just, there was nothing in any way linking them to the disappearance of Philip. And one thing was that I suppose for some reason, the media kind of hyped up the religious element, specifically with the family. You know, they were, the family were, Perhaps, well, they were unfairly portrayed as being extremely religious, which they weren't. They were just practicing Catholics and they had faith. So the fact that the, the this rumor kind of, I suppose, circulated in relation to the religious cults, it just it just was all very speculative and it wasn't based on I, anything I see, real. The thing is, like, this is like 80s Ireland as well. Like most families were practicing Catholics. This is Catholics. it. Yeah, that's what I mean. That there was nothing out of the ordinary with their religious practices at all. And Alice appeared on the Gay Burn radio show. It's actually a really, really sad interview. Um, obviously, goes out saying she talks about how she's utterly ba- she was utterly baffled as to what had happened to her son. And she pleaded with whoever was holding him to let him go. Approaching Christmas, the Karen's family addressed the nation in a televised appeal. At this point, the investigators were also looking to speak to a young man who'd been seen near the laneway on the day in question. It materialised at this stage that Philip's two religion books had been missing from the bag. Now again, the tabloids kind of latched onto this and they said, this is evidence that Philip has been taken by by a cult. But the detectives felt what was much more likely was that the religion books had been taken to kind of throw the guards off the scent and get them thinking that this was the avenue to take because the media had kind of proliferated this rumour about the religious cults. So that's why they felt the religious books were missing. The religion books were missing. Okay, yeah. And I'd I'd say the media probably latched on to it because during the 80s... The satanic panic? Yes, definitely. And also in Ireland, I think it it was the beginning of people like, you know, in a small way, but starting to ask questions. Yeah. And stuff starting to come out about yes. different and things. It was kind of 
they were waking up to institutionalism to a degree yes. then, weren't they? Yeah, like fl- yeah. like you know, fledgling form, but um, absolutely no, they definitely were. And the the church was obviously oh anything to do with church or religion was obviously always going to be a big seller. Mm-hmm. In terms of pay, because everyone in the country was well, obsessed by religion, and it's it's salacious. You know, you say this child was abducted by a religious cult, and everyone's like, "Whoa!" You know, didn't see that coming. So it's it's something that's going to sell papers it, as see, well. As well, I think at the time it would have been a much more thing of people going around. Um, doing the like knocking on your door. Oh, but that used to go on to get in the nineties. People used to come yeah. knocking on the doors. So I mean, absolutely, that was very much of its time. I know now this and is we- the mid eighties, but I'm sure there probably yeah. would. But there was a degree of that even in the eighties. Yeah, and it was basically like we're. There was kind of a view with some people anyway that like we're grand, but anyone who's not who's not Catholic, i.e., the right religion. They're a bit mad, yeah. And there with, all, was, the, with all their mad rules. Well, there, I well, it's, <laughs> I know that great Father Dougal moment where he talks about the cult and they realise it's the Catholic Church. Um, but no, I mean there is that. But like priests did come out at the time, and there was, you know, there was a spillover from the states with this whole satanic panic kind of thing, and then there were the priests who were saying, you know, beware of these alternative religious communities, etc. So of course, this story kind of fed into that then. Uh, so it was kind of a perfect storm, I suppose, in yeah. terms of rumour. And then around this time, so the beginning of 1987, they brought one guy in from the Fashion ma- Mansions to, he had been outed in the Sunday world as a child molester and a vigilante group had rocked up to the house, to the flat. He'd been brought in for questioning, but there was absolutely no link to Philip's murder. Then this other guy from Rathfarnham, a young man, he came forward and said he had been abducted by a religious group and brought to Northern Ireland. The guards investigated and they kind of established pretty early on that there was absolutely nothing they really needed to look at here in terms of, you know, its correlation to Philip. So they just kind of, Mm. I suppose, dismissed that straight away. Then it emerged that a red car had been spotted parked on the Ballyrone Road on the day Philip had disappeared. Now, this is kind of where... I suppose this is something reasonably concrete. So this red car appears again and again in this story. So this witness came forward and she said she had seen a young male teenager approach this car. But again, the guards hadn't been able to get any more information on this. They made their appeals again. And two years later, a young Irish boy arrived at a Scottish police station claiming to be Philip Cairns with a distinctive mark on his face, which matched that of Philip's. But when the guards arrived, they discovered the boy was not Philip, but a runaway from Ballymun. So I just think that's a particularly heartbreaking twist in this, that they had somebody in a Scottish police station. He had a similar facial mark to Philip. He was answering all the questions correctly. They really thought it was Philip. They went over there and it wasn't him. I mean, it it just must have been so crushing for everyone involved that they really thought that everything was pointing to this being Philip, particularly him having this distinctive facial mark. And it it wasn't the case. It was a a young runaway from Pally One. They also got a tip from this guy. I don't know if you remember this story as well that would have gone around. This guy had been in a claim to, but he'd been in this cult called the Moonies. And he claimed that he had met a boy who had said he was Philip Cairns. He had introduced himself as Philip Cairns and he wrote a seven-page letter to the guards explaining this. So, of course, the guards then brought him in for questioning. After the interview, shock horror, the man retracted the whole story and said that this was a complete fabrication. So the really, I think one really sad aspect of this case and very frustrating for the family would be that it it did kind of attract these... I mean, I suppose these headbangers who were prank calling them, who were coming up with, you know, ringing the tip line, et cetera, with these mad stories that had no basis in reality. Like these psychics were getting in touch with them. Like you, your heart would just break for them because they just seemed to attract all these people. It's very hard to understand the mentality of someone who's going to make up something like that and cause such devastation to a family who are already going through so much. But this case just attracted so much of that. Yeah, I think, well, obviously it was so, it's like such a high profile case 
and then just you know they were living a nice middle class area you know nice family and just the fact that it seemed like he vanished yeah into thin air and uh what age was I so I started going to school in Mafarnham when I was in second class and then I remember the first time you kind of hear this story about this boy Philip Kearns and obviously you are freaked out because of course like it freaks me it's, it, but it's your worst now, night like, as a child it must make you feel so scared you know somebody telling you oh, oh yeah. you know he was he was walking back to school from lunch one day and he was never seen again it's it's the kind of urban myth that as you get older you say no I mean there's no way that could have happened it's just something that we were told as kids just to just to scare us but this actually did happen yeah and you see the thing is as well like so say the walk back to school is 15 minutes it wasn't even the walk back to school. It was the walk to, uh, was he, he, the walk to the mate's house. So yeah. it was probably like five minute walk, whatever. But so you're freaked out hearing the story, but then you, you hear lots of stuff over the years. And I remember like we were in primary school and our PE teacher, because obviously you weren't getting dropped and collected to places like you would be no. now. That's, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's the recent phenomenon. Like the, I don't think this, the kids in second year uh, can go home for lunch. I know in the girls' school anyway, I think they have to be in third, or maybe it's fourth from fourth year, but they need like permission from their parents that they're allowed to do that mm-hmm. or whatever. But anyway, the PE teacher told us about somebody going around in a white van trying to get children into the van our PE why would your PE I mean this I mean come so on so to be careful Judy yeah. oh my god shitting myself but you would have been I terrified constantly well, there, to have nightmares about fucking getting abducted well there was but like, you know what there was but there was a lot of that I can remember in school like various members of staff would be again like kind of perpetuating this like uh, I mean the perennial man in the van story you know that was always yeah. kind of thrown out there um, and it is I mean it's something that I think when you hear stories like that when you're a young age it really does it seeps into your bones. I mean, it just terrifies you. Oh yeah, big style. Like I think someone needs to do PR for man and a white fan, like fan man, because even still when I see them, I'm just like, I know, no. you're still like, oh yeah, there's a creep. And it it is just a man who's like transporting his handmade crafts from one end to the one end of the country but to if, the other. But if you asked um like not just anyone, like if you went up to someone in a corner shop, it'd be pretty fucking weird. But like if you asked anyone who was around at that time or whatever about the Kearns family, like everyone's response would be, oh, like lovely family and, you know, really I mean, nice they just sound, like they just sound absolutely gorgeous. And because I think they had, they were so open with the media, there's something like just really, really, so I, they just strike me as such a dignified, beautiful family. And I think because they engaged with the media in a bit, obviously to keep Philip's story fresh and, you know, yeah. to kind of keep it in the papers, you almost, you, you just get a real sense of them in a way maybe you mm-hmm. don't always get with other families who for obvious reasons don't necessarily want to engage with media. But yeah. I mean, they just seem absolutely gorgeous. And in speaking of the media, in October 1989, the Sunday Independent came up with this theory. So they said that the guards had been misled by a person who had been re- interviewed and he was actually responsible for Philip's disappearance. So the Sunday Independent have a real... Um, they're quite invested in this story. So we're going to come back to them now again as well. But they suggested that Philip had been offered a lift by a man he knew and that this man had been interviewed and that he was responsible for Philip's disappearance. And they also said that Philip's father felt that that is actually what happened to, happened to him. So he said that it, they said that in the article that Philip Cairns Sr. felt that that's actually what occurred. So the guards were adamant that they were still running on the presumption that Philip was alive. And a week after this article, 
it was reported that uh, the authorities had received four anonymous phone calls where two possible abductors were named and a lot of named and a lot of detail was given. The guards again appealed for these um, callers to come forward, but to no avail. Particularly, they were interested in speaking to a woman who they described as a housewife, who appeared to have a lot of information which they said would have been unavailable to the public. So, kind of gives you the heebie-jeebies. And they talked again about this on television. They said, please come forward. But no other call was made. They said that all the calls pointed to the Raffarnham area and local suspects. They did say as well that a caller had named a man who had already been put forward as somebody who had potential involvement. So in other words, this name had come up again. However, Mm -hmm. despite these strange coincidences, again, they were saying that they were keeping an open mind and they needed concrete evidence to bring the case along to move it all forward. The guards came back to this man who had been spotted on the corner of Ballyroan Road and Ballyroan Crescent the day of Philip's disappearance. So this is the red car again. So a couple of people had gotten in touch about this car and one guy in particular got in touch. So this man had been driving a red car. He had a red that had a ZU and a 7 in it. He was described as having curly hair and the car appeared to be kind of a Japanese model and was parked really strangely. So fast forward to 1994. An age-progressed picture of Philip was shown in a bid to invite new leads and the guards got a letter from a woman saying she had seen Philip. I don't know if you remember this story um, that came out in 94 that she said she had seen Philip playing on a bridge near the River Dodder with two older boys. But again, the Cairns family really didn't think that rang true because Philip was very cautious around water. And anyway, that turned out to be a false lead. And the following year, this guy called James Conley, he was a businessman and he offered £20,000 at the time as a reward for mm-hmm. new information in this case. James Conley appealed to, so he appealed to one caller who had rang the tip line to come forward and he felt that this caller, he kind of, I suppose he he put a lot of credence in what this caller said because this caller was one of the few who wasn't asking about the money. So she seemed to have no interest in the money at all and he said he wouldn't elaborate on what the caller said but that diff, she did say Philip's disappearance was linked to, quote, an abuse situation. Headstuff have launched their own subscription service, which means that you can contribute to the production of the podcast. And in exchange, you can avail of some really lovely bonus content. So, for example, if you'd like to throw a couple of dollar dollar to Crimeland, you can enjoy an extra episode every month. As part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, we're going to be giving shout outs to various podcasts every week. This week is one I really, really love. I just adore this podcast. You need to check it out if you haven't already. It's Sissy That Pod. Come on, Sissy That Pod. Let's get sickening. Are you a fan of the Emmy Award winning show RuPaul's Drag Race? Do you think about Roxy Andrews at the bus stop? And do you belong in Party City? Well, Sissy That Pod is the podcast for you. Join me, James, and my co-host, Keen. Is there something on my face? As we chat weekly about the runway realness, sickening shade, and backstage buffoonery. That's right. Whether it's new episodes of Drag Race US, UK, or All-Stars, Sissy That Pod will spill the tea with a new episode for you within 24 hours. So make good choices and subscribe to Sissy That Pod from the Headstuff Podcast Network and we'll leave you gagging on our eleganza. Now, let the music play. So in April 99 then, a few years later, so obviously at this stage now we're talking about, I mean, it's 13 years Philip has been missing. The Sunday World in 1999 spoke to a witness that said, that who said, this is this builder guy. So he was one of the guys who had seen this red car. He had seen Philip speaking to a man in the car the day he disappeared. He commented that he had seen a boy running towards a car and that the boy had fallen but gotten up quickly and ran ran towards the car to speak to the driver. Heartbreakingly, he thought that this was a bit odd. There was just something about it that he thought was strange. So he had written down the reg number of the car, but then he went out to clean out his car and he threw the number out. Guards actually sent him to a hypnotist to see could he remember the reg details, but obviously to no avail. So I just think that's a particularly upsetting aspect in this that this guy had written down a reg plate he was that forward thinking but then he Mm -hmm. threw it out so it's just you know it's it's another 
I mean, imagine that disappointment for the family to think that somebody actually went to that effort of writing it down and then threw it out. Yeah. Oh, so the Sunday Independence writer, Jimmy Gearing, he came up with this theory. He said that he had investigated this case extensively and that he felt, and just a bit of a trigger warning, because obviously this is um, quite upsetting, but his theory was that Philip had been abused by somebody known to the family and that Philip had approached another family friend who unbeknownst to him was also an abuser and that these men had killed Philip in a bid to silence him. He even said that Philip's body had been thrown into a pond in Loretto Convent, Rathfarnham. And uh, he said that this was also what Philip's father believed. He did say as well that he'd been given access to the, uh, interviews by this guy, Jerry O'Brien, who'd been a teacher in Kloshta Ain at the time. And at this stage, he was actually principal. And he maintained, this guy, Jerry O'Brien, that he thought that Philip may have met someone through a prayer group or prayer activities and that he had probably been taken by somebody he knew. Crime Stoppers at this time as well went on to offer a €10,000 award for information. And it was at this time a woman came forward to say that this guy she'd been in a relationship with claimed he knew what happened to Philip and he knew where he'd been buried. And bizarrely, another woman had also called, naming the same man. These leads were investigated and yet proved fruitless and led to nothing. And then also in May 2009, 2009, the guards went to excavate a golf course in South County Dublin. But once again, they found absolutely no answers. In 2016, the name Eamon Cook suddenly became associated with this case. So Eamon Cook was this radio DJ and in 2003, he'd been placed on trial for attempted rape of four girls. And in March 2010, he was sentenced to prison for sexually assaulting two girls. So in 2016, Cook was in a hospice for terminal cancer when the guards received a call from a woman who claimed, and this is, I think this is when people talk about this case this was the theory that really caught fire with people and it's the one maybe it's the theory that's probably a little bit better known so this woman said that when Philip disappeared she was nine years old and she claimed to have seen Philip Carnes in Cook's radio studio and that she remembered seeing Philip being hit and that she herself then fell unconscious and the next thing she remembered she was in a car the woman also said that guards had previously gotten in touch with her as they thought she had been the person to leave the bag in the lane. The woman then came forward reiterating that she had seen, you know, Philip in this these radio studios in Inchicore and that she was terrified of Cook. Cook's ex-wife also said that any time there had been something on, on Philip on TV, he made a point of always saying that he had searched for him, which she, whatever context in which he said it, she thought was odd. The guards went to the hospice in 2016 to interview Cook and Cook did say at that time that he had known Philip and that Philip had been in his car but claimed to have no information as to what happened to Philip that day. That said, family friends, including, say, Gareth O'Callaghan, who's like a distant relation who took, who himself is a DJ and broadcaster, and he took a particular interest in this case. So they came forward and said, the family friends came forward and said that uh, Philip had been interested in radio broadcasting and Cook had promised to show him uh, the radio studio, which was at Radio Dublin. However, investigators were slow to pay much heed to Cook's small admissions because he was close to that death and he also had pronounced Alzheimer's. Despite widespread public opinion that Cook was involved, the guards have been extremely cautious in declaring this this to be the case because one thing that they always point to was the fact that Radio Dublin was a really busy radio station at the time. And they made they have made the point that Philip was not seen by anyone else bar this one woman who would have been nine at the time. And they also said that Cook's last known movements on the day and Philip's movements on the day did not match up and that no forensics had linked Cook to Philip's school bag. And as I said, DJ, the DJ and broadcaster Gareth O'Callan, he has gotten really involved in this case and he's insisted and he's actually spoken a few times to the Irish Times about this, that he believes that Philip's, mur- well, I should say Philip's disappearance was linked to 
a child abuse ring that was very well connected. So that had well connected links and that they were in fact involved in Philip's disappearance and that Cook had been used as a scapegoat. O'Callaghan has said that he's been contacted by someone who named a man as having been involved, a name that had already been put forward by a separate source. O'Callaghan had been told that Philip had been buried in a garden and O'Callaghan has questioned why the guards have not acted on this lead and as of yet they still have not searched the garden of this person who was named by two sources. On the 30th anniversary of Philip's disappearance in 2016 a petition was signed by 300 people asking guards to act on new leads. The guards maintain that this is very much an open investigation and welcome all potential new lines of inquiry. If you do have any information in relation to this case you can call Guard Confidential on 1800 1600 or Crime Stoppers on 1800-2525. And that is the story of the disappearance of Philip Kearns. So very sad. I, I didn't realise that this was your audition for a crime call at the end. Oh, I like, mean, wow, profesh, profesh. It would be, it would be, it would be my dream. You know what? I was like, is it a bit ridiculous me throwing this in here? Because, you know, as if somebody's going to listen to this and say, oh, actually, yes, I must cry. I didn't think of that before, but I must call up Crime Stoppers with a bit of information. But you know what? It's just because the guards are still so adamant that yeah. they are open to information that I think it's just good to throw in there. But gee, I would love to do crime call though that would be the dream that would be right up your street the print the principal he he were saying jerry o'brien uh i'm almost sure that he's the principal of the primary school but he would have known philip oh okay okay so So he was a former teacher yes well obviously philip was only in uh second year but i'd say probably the he was in first year actually so yeah first year was he he would have been Um, very familiar with them then and I'd say it was probably from the confirmation probably the prayer group thing yes maybe started or whatever but um yeah I I was following Garrett's stuff on Facebook now obviously this is a good few years ago and he was getting huge support and huge uh, reaction but I know that the family had asked him to stop that they were felt like he was just it was basically just causing them pain and as you said like obviously they were always very uh, open and trying to keep um there's you know kind trying to keep it a story in the media and mm-hmm. keep uh, Philip in people's minds or whatever but they um had actually asked them to stop that they were finding it they found it intrusive yeah, because I know he was he was adamant. Well, not well. Yeah, adamant. I suppose about one particular site. It was a back garden that he he wanted dug up. So he was kind of uh, visiting people. I think, or at least contacting them anyway, to kind of ask them about you know what's the story. When can we dig up this back garden and stuff like that. And then the Peter Cook thing. So I Eamon Cook. Work, oh, Eamon Cook. Peter Cook. Eamon Cook. I worked with a fellow before who had actually started off in the whole uh, pi- uh, pirate radio scene and knew of him and was actually in contact with some of the survivors and was kind of helping them through the legal process so I know what you mean in terms of like scapegoat he and god it was off I think I mean what I mean Eamon Cook was just a horrendous uh, I mean Eamon Cook was a horrendous person I mean he even actually he actually arson attacked um he had eight convictions And uh, by the time he he went to trial in 2010 and was found guilty, I mean, did not spend, if you do the maths and it didn't spend much time in prison because then he ended up in the hospice in 2016. But uh, he did even, he even arson attacked a complainant's house. So they, we're talking about, I mean, he was universally held in contempt this man I mean anyone who kind of worked with him seemed quite scared of him nervous around him I mean he was known as being a very dodgy character and ultimately was a convicted paedophile 
Yeah, I suppose the problem about places like that back in the day that they would have attracted or it would have been easy to kind of lure younger people with the, you know, the glamour of it or whatever. Of course, yeah. um, Yeah, so is Garrett still kind of posting stuff about it? He's, I can't, do you know what? I didn't find anything too recently, too recent from him. Um, But I do think, I suppose one of the reasons as well, the Cairns were, they weren't really jumping on the bandwagon with um, Gareth O'Callaghan's theories. Like they have very much felt supported by the guards, you know, in terms of the Mm -hmm. guards really have kept this alive. I think there was an element of, because this was so perplexing, like you can imagine as a detective, you would just want to solve this case because it is such a mystery. How can a 13-year-old boy vanish in the middle of the day at a busy junction in an urban area. It just makes no sense whatsoever. So I can imagine from a detective's point of view, this is the one you really want to solve. Um, so I totally yeah. get Gareth O'Callan. Like as an outsider coming in, it is definitely easy to look at these pieces of the puzzle and feel frustrated. But I suppose none, you know, we don't really know the investigation that is going on behind the scenes either. And I mean, ultimately what you don't want to do is upset a family who has already obviously been totally devastated by this you know um so it's 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 a tough one because you do get where he's coming from in terms of wanting to find answers for them but then ultimately you do have to defer to the family in this I mean that's what it's all about what do they want I know and then like when you see his picture um obviously don't get me wrong it's it's terribly tragic no matter what age somebody is. But like, he's just a little baby. Do you know what I mean? Really sad. He's, he, he is a baby. Yeah, it's just... Oh, I don't like it, Judy. And, you know, I, uh, there would have been talk then in, in recent years of um, paedophile rings and stuff. And sometimes I think the problem with that term is that people think that, well, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but when I hear the the term paedophile ring, I think of like huge scale stuff like, you know, Epstein and that kind of thing. But I'm sure it doesn't always have to be like that. I just sometimes I think that uh, phrase throws people that yeah. it nearly, it just, I don't know, the, it just, it adds an element of uh, far-fetched to it. But maybe yeah. that's my own naivety. But there has to, I don't know if there's a, a, I just feel like it's been created by the media. And I think the term just, uh, I don't know, just doesn't help people coming forward. Put it that way, because if you think that you're, giving information against a paedophile ring, like a powerful ring of abusers who will do anything to keep their identities safe and keep each other safe. And I like, that's how it works. Yeah. Do you know, like, I know that's what they have to call it that, but just anytime. Well, I I think I know exactly, I know exactly what you mean that I think where I think, Calling it that is maybe unnecessary because ultimately what we're talking about is, you know, abusers working together and ultimately working to, uh, you know, cover each other's tracks or working in a covert way yeah. collectively. I think calling it a paedophile ring, it, it almost... It's unnecessary. I think it can intimidate people coming forward because it makes you feel like you're you're really going up against it. It's you know, yeah. it's and like, rather than rather it's than obviously pure evil, but like it just makes me feel like it's it's kind of a a mafia kind of a thing. Yes, yeah. But maybe it maybe maybe they all are like that. Maybe they all work together like that and then well, it's, when I people mean, start talking about be, there's got to be people 
in you know uh prominent positions that obviously well i think keep information uh, yeah information, i think kind what of we, a, oh god but then you know that stuff does happen so maybe I was, it's just yeah. my own little mind not wanting to no i them. i totally get where you're coming from and i do think as well if we've learned anything from the last few decades we've learned that i mean you know you hear of these people abusing children and you think I mean, that just, I mean, obviously the most heinous crime of all, you you just can't even go there mentally just for your own sanity. You can't. But then what we have learned over the last few decades, whether it's Epstein or, you know, various, various groups like this, which will be operating in say, do you remember that horrendous Belgian case that, that, um, uh, hit the media in the mid 90s there was this awful very prolific paedophile ring for want of a better term operating in Belgium that actually invariably with these groups they are quite often well connected because that's how they get away with it for so long they're well connected and then ultimately because they're well connected they invariably have leverage over powerful people and then they are people yeah. who, even today, actually, speaking of the mafia, I know I promised you I was weaning myself off Pat Kenny, but I did listen to him today. Because, <laughs> you know, they're actually bringing 300 mafia members to court. I don't know if you saw this. But again, no, no. They, were, they were saying, I thought it was interesting, this guy, the report was talking about the fact that the reason the mafia continues to fascinate and to continue to operate to such an extent is because they are kings at getting under people's skin and you know having people in all the right places so I see where Gareth O'Callaghan is coming from in relation to this he puts it down to oh it's a bit convenient to blame this on a dead paedophile but you know I just feel I think the guards are right in saying look we're open to all lines of inquiry it's a case we hope that will con- reach conclusion at some point just for the sake of the family. Now, Philip Kern Sr. sadly passed away in 2014. Alice has continued to speak um, to the media on occasion and she talks about um, the very sad quote uh, from her talking about how she just wants to give Philip a Christian burial, which I just think mm. is so torturous for a family that ultimately that she's at that stage that that is all she's asking for, which is just so little. It would just be so wonderful if she did have an answer at some point. Uh, very sad story. Emma, you brought so much to thank you so much for your local knowledge. Julie, I'm just, I'm kind of like here laughing inside my head. Like, Why? Thank God we do up to 90 together. We don't do crime land. I wouldn't be able for it. I would just spend the whole time just sitting here listening to you going, let's just, well, there's a lot. There's a lot of that. Well, we had to. Well, I think that this is a particularly sad one. They're all sad. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I think, of course. But I think it's just I know I can visualize the places, or even like I can see the first years going up to Clash Day, and they're like, do not them own, but you know what I mean. I know what they all look like in that uniform, and it's just. But anyway, look. Too much, too uh, much. I just, I think I'm too full of harsh to do something. You're like too this, soft, you know? Emma. I keep telling you, <laughs> you're too soft. On that note, you uh, do have, you have something very exciting to plug. Do I have another podcast? <laughs> it's called. I didn't you know we were. See- I didn't know we were seeing you other people. You started. It's just ten weeks. It's called That's Telly what Box. they all say. It's just one night. It's just 10 weeks. No, it is just 10 weeks because it's like, it's all profession with a company. So it's 10 That's weeks. That's like when, it's and like when you, it's like when um, somebody's parents, you call around to your friend's house and you notice the dad has moved into the box room and your friend is like, they're still married. They're still together. Just dad sleeping in the box room because mom snores. <laughs> You're like, no, it's over. It's over. No, it's it's not it's not a box room situation because there is um but there's a company, we need to, so they've put ten weeks into it and that's it. But anyway, that's not important. <laughs> this isn't selling it. It's called Telebox. It's me and Jen Hatton and we watch like new things on telly, talk about a bit of telly and have a guest. A celebrity Beautiful. guest and they tell us their favorite TV show. Do you think so will I be bag. would I be famous enough for series two? Am I gonna make the cut? 
Yeah, I think so. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> of course you will. You're going to have Claire Byrne or someone instead of me. I know it. No, I she works for, know it. She's on another broadcaster, so you've got to... You've got to, uh, you've got to be chopless. You've got to be in between broadcasting companies. Is that what you're saying? You've got to, exactly. Yeah. If you're not committed to any of the ones that are on our books, you're out. Well, listen, it's, I haven't listened to it yet, but it does look great. And I saw the clip from Joanne and it looks fantastic. So we wish you all the best. Telebox with Jen Hatton. Of course, Emma Doran, comedian on all the socials. Yeah. Oh, actually, I just want to say our um, producer on Telebox, Ian, he does, it, it's him really. So, hey, Ian. You're such a nickers. Okay. Uh, well, listen, I'm only messing. Come here. Please do check it out, guys, because it does look absolutely deadly. And both Emma and Jen are hilarious. And it's a great concept. We love you, Emma. Thank you so much for getting involved. I should have made you do this in the middle of Philip Curds, although that would have been crass because I feel like this is going to get cut now. <laughs> no, honestly, I promise you will not. It will not get the chop. I promise. Thanks so much, Emma. Thanks for having me on. Big love. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed that. Oh, uh, well, I really enjoyed you. You were absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for bringing the local knowledge to the honesty. You were deadly. Thanks a million, Mrs. I, I'm going to do a deep dive now. Nice. See you later. Bye. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Head Stuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.